Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Oh, hello there and welcome into Downtown, the podcast. That should be obvious by now. It is episode number 208. Rich Kimball with you, along with Carrie Haskell. And we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two very fine conversations for you on the show this week. A little bit later on, producer-director Steve Binder talks about, well, everything that went into getting Elvis and Colonel Tom Parker to agree to what became known as Elvis's 1968 comeback special. Steve Bender was the producer and the director, and he's put together a beautiful new book called Elvis's 68 Comeback. And we'll talk with him about all of that in the second half of the podcast this week. Up first, a great friend of our program, comedian Paula Poundstone, who is back on the road making people laugh all around the country. She hosts the wonderful podcast, Nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. Let's give a listen to our conversation with Paula here on downtown. Hey, how are you? Just great, thank you. Good to have you coming back to Maine. I was thinking you you are here so often. I think you're here enough to get a residency requirement. Is there a chance you could run for senator for us? Oh, gee, I I I, I loved you know if I were Mark Meadows, I'd already be voting there. <laughs> as well as several other places. <laughs> yeah, Mark Meadows just looks at a house, and, and he lives in it. It's wild. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, boy, I wish I lived in Maine. You got a lot of nice features out there. We do. We do. Now, I also noticed uh, that after you do, you've got a couple shows in Maine and one in New Hampshire. Then you're off to Hawaii. That's some, some fine planning on your part. Yeah, I don't believe in routing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it, it, I, you know, I. The thing about Hawaii is that it's a really long flight, and then I fly home the next day. I don't really, I don't really do anything. It's a weird place not to do anything. So, what do you do I, I, when you fly that long? Because depending on where you're going from, that's that's a pretty lengthy flight across the ocean. How do you kill time on a long flight? Oh, I just I sleep. And I'll tell you, the good thing about masks, and I think a lot of the people that are anti-mask, that were so excited about having the mask, not a mandate on the airplane anymore, you know what you're forgetting? You know what you're not realizing? No one sees your mouth hanging open. <laughs> I am all for masks on a plane. Okay, even when we're well beyond, if we ever get well beyond the virus, I'm still wearing a mask on a plane just for the privacy. Well, be, uh, you know, because that face can be embarrassing, that, that mouth hanging open really face. embarrassing. I was on a radio station a thousand years ago, and I forget where, but it was like a morning radio show, and I had gone in, um, you know, some city far away from where I live. And this was back when radio stations used a lot of fax machines. And uh, someone, a listener on that station, faxed in a picture that they had taken of me <laughs> On an airplane. And it was so embarrassing. It was funny, but it was embarrassing. Uh, just, you know, me asleep with my mouth hanging open. I pretty much sleep the whole time on a flight. Um, yeah, that or, you know, to pull my mask down for a second to put a chip in. 
Uh, although if you're skilled, you can pour the chips in the top of the mask and just munch away. Well, that's a pretty good deal. So it's hands-free. Yeah, yeah. It's something I learned to do while I was walking a dog. So just <laughs> more like a feed bag than a mask, really. <laughs> Paula Poundstone with us here on Downtown. I have been so impressed. You haven't just continued the, the COVID workouts that you started, but you've you've ramped it up a bit here. Yeah, I started, you're right, it was a COVID workout. I started very early on uh, in the pandemic, uh, doing two times a day. My goal was to be able to do real push-ups. And, uh, you know, I did some other things, uh, threw, threw some other things in there. But, you know, uh, I did push-ups on my knees, you know, so that I could build up my strength. Then somebody told me about push-ups leaning on the wall, and then you moved to a counter. So I, included, I would do them t- t- twice a day. And every week, add on one, or most weeks, add on one. If I was feeling strong, I would add on one. And uh, and then somebody on Twitter goaded, because I would always post it on Twitter, uh, and somebody on Twitter goaded me at some point into trying real ones, um, and I could do three. So three twice a day for a while, and then I added one on. And now I do, uh, I only do them five days a week, but I do 51 real push-ups wow. twice a day and plus 69 of the other two kinds and i don't know some other stuff like i do a thing called a russian twist which a lot of people on twitter write to me because they're appalled that i do something called russian and i point out <laughs> that my russian twists are the protesters mine are the brave russians <laughs> the, the, the good the good ones that have protested and spoken truth to power um yeah i can't say that it's that is, well, I mean, it feels it, it feels good to feel a little bit stronger. I, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess that's a good thing. Now you had Carl Lewis on the podcast. Was he impressed with your work? Yeah, he says that he is. <laughs> he also said so. We had Carl Lewis, the great uh, uh, Olympian, um, who was in I forget what year ninety something. He was the fastest man in the world, and uh, my coworkers on my podcast. I challenged them to a hundred meter race and we all did our, uh, you know, we all did our, our Olympic trials. Um, we all did a race, um, individually. We weren't together. We just measured and timed ourselves individually. And then we, and then we told our time, uh, and then we had Carl come on to coach us. (laughs) And, uh, he said, I have the slowest time uh, of the group. And uh, Carl said he thought that I could increase, I could improve by 30%, which is pretty insulting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a lot of wiggle room for improvement. And, you know, so I've been running, uh, um, you know, a couple times a day when I'm home. And I'll tell you something. I don't think I'm going to improve by 30%. I'm still still pretty damn slow. I did did some indoor training the other day in my house with uh, my dogs trailing behind me. And at one point, I I videoed it. And at one point while I was running, you could hear one of the dogs fall over. (laughs) And they're big dogs. And they're, you know, they're pretty, well, one of them is young. The other one, I have one that's 10 years old and he was just uh, like about, two or three weeks ago now, diagnosed with congenital heart disease. Oh. And, uh, yeah, it's not good. But so they had to um, insert a tube 
uh, into my bank account and drain it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's traumatic. Traumatic for everyone involved. And, you know, I always, you're, maybe you're like me, I always used to, when I would hear about people spending large amounts of money on a, on a pet who wasn't doing well, I thought, you know, come on. They're, they're, they're just pets, and then it happens to you, and you're like, I don't care what it costs. I need to do this. Well, in his case, they thought that they, they – they, first of all, they took three liters of fluid out of his dark chest. Wow. They, they thought that, they, you know, that he, he might live for another year, and I felt like, okay, you know, he's 10 – um, he's not, you know, if he was 15, if he was even 13, I might feel differently. Mostly because I don't want to bother him. You, you know, right, I don't right. want him at the vet. I know that he doesn't, that's not, a, that's not a treat for him. I don't want to, you know, um, you know, sometimes I, I have a lot of pets. I have 10 cats and two big dogs. Um, and I take them to the vet sometimes when they're sick, but you know, honestly, sometimes I don't. I, I, because there is a circle, you know, there's a beginning and a middle and an end mm. for life. I, sometimes I go to the vet and I see the same people there with the same animal. And there's a protocol at the vet where you're supposed to look into the pet carrier of another and say, isn't that beautiful? But sometimes, <laughs> you know what? It's really not beautiful. <laughs> sometimes I, there was this little dog the other day and I'm like, wait a minute. I know that thing had legs the last time I saw it. <laughs> And now it's got, like, wheels. The lady is spraying its nose with a, a, a water bottle because it can't moisten its own nose anymore. Like, I think that thing has been dead for, like, the last three vests. It, it had carpet scraps for fur. They had just sort of sewn on some carpet. There is a point. Uh, and, and certainly I wouldn't, for myself, I, I don't want carpet scraps sewn onto me. So No. Now we were keep the pets need, uh, you know, like if they could talk, what would they say? And I don't think they would. I don't think they would say no matter what. No, no, they would say, you know what? Don't bother me. And you mentioned that you know every every time you look in the pet carrier, it's not a beautiful sight. We were talking last week about babies, and you, know, you have to be careful who you say this to. But <laughs> you know, not every baby is uh, ready for that Gerber jar. Yeah, yeah. When I got when my when my son, you know, I. I uh, I fostered and, and adopted. And when I brought my son home, uh, by the way, uh, I got a call, you know, that it was a baby that needed a, you know, a home. I, 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 I drove to a hospital. I signed some papers. I put them in the, you know, the, the car seat baby bucket thing. And, uh, and I drove uh, to the McDonald's drive up window, got a Big Mac and went home. So <laughs> there was no pushing there was no, I, there was no tearing. It was good, um, but you know when I when I got him home and I you know was staring at him, uh, I realized that he had a he had like a smushed nose, and I, I just all I thought was you know we'll love him anyways. You know it, was, it, it turned out that he just it was because he was so recently born that he was still smushed. Sure, sure. You know from uh, but uh, but I was. You know, if somebody had looked at him at that point, they would have to kind of lie. Well, but you know, go, oh yeah, he, oh yeah. Oh, he's he's adorable. <laughs> what a what a unique look he has. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, <laughs> yeah, he's a uh, boy. <laughs> he's gonna have to he's gonna have to learn to run fast because he's not gonna win by a nose. 
Oh. <laughs> back to uh, back to pets for a moment uh, on, on the I think the most recent episode of the podcast. Nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. You, I love that you had a cadaver dog expert on whose name was Cat. Yeah, what a what irony, huh? Um, yeah, and she was telling us about um, she has a she has a German Shepherd, I believe, that is a cadaver dog. It's actually amazing what they do. Um, uh, my dog uh, Mo, who is addicted to tennis balls, um, she would all so they they have these dogs that are trained to 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 sniff out dead bodies. Um, and sometimes there's, there's things like, for example, there's a, a project, I think it's just called the Railroad Project, where they were using prisoners to build railroads at one point. And, and when they would die, they would just leave them. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty awful uh, part of our history. Uh, but so they're now getting these dogs to go find these bodies so that, the, you know, to, you know, I don't know, to return the rights to the body to the extended family and and because uh, it wasn't recent but uh nonetheless uh it is pretty amazing my dog mo will only work on such a project if it's at wimbledon uh, <laughs> where there's tennis balls involved she was uh, uh i don't know it was a year ago or so there was a story going around the internet like a you know sort of a heartwarming story about a guy that was walking his dog and the man had uh, a seizure and fell down on the sidewalk, had a seizure. And the dog um, went off the sidewalk, blocked traffic to get someone to come help its master. And, uh, you know, and, you know, the happy, uh, heartwarming story. I tell you something, I just came back from walking my dog. I could, I could just plain pass out on the sidewalk and I would wake up with my dog's face over mine and a Spitty, gross, muddy tennis ball on my chest. <laughs> and my dog would just be going, it looks like you got some risk. Could you throw that ball again? <laughs> All she cares about. Well, Paula, uh, listen, I, I, not to bring up a sore subject, but uh, you did not successfully defend your title as the Downtown oh, Madness man. champion. But you had a great was run. A Perry Gilpin yep. was just a force to reckon with this year. It was rigged. It was rigged. <laughs> I got the cyber ninjas on this. We're going to. Uh, I'm, I'm seizing the. I'm seizing the voting booth. The whatever whatever mechanism you use to count. Uh, yeah. I, if only was, Mike Pence could have found you a few extra votes. Oh my gosh. We well, you know what? I don't know when you. I don't know when you're doing the official. Um, uh, you know, turning over the votes. The official electoral. Uh, 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 downtown <laughs> Maine count, but uh, yeah. Well, you <laughs> should just pull a trump I'm and getting, don't don't come to the ceremony. I'm getting my dog print on me flag ready. That's all <laughs> I want to say. Uh, wait till next year, as we say here in in Red Sox country. But uh, Paula, you're always a favorite of ours. So great to talk with you. Look forward to the shows in Maine, a Stone Mountain Art Center in Brownfield on May 12th, and the Strand in Rockland on May 14th. Going to be great as always. Paula, thanks again for visiting with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's Paula Poundstone here on Downtown. I, Carrie, I don't know. That I could do. Imagine, I know I couldn't do that Paula Poundstone workout. Not all those push-ups. Not a chance. 
No, I, I couldn't either. But the the thing is, if if you've been follow if you follow her social media, it, it, she couldn't at the beginning either. She she is definitely. Right. She, I mean, what a case study of how to work up to a workout, mm. and and she's done an amazing amazing job with that. It may help if you have a cat like on your back. That adds to the challenge, too, if you've been paying close <laughs> attention there. Anyway, Paulo Poundstone with us on downtown. We'll pause for a moment for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, we talk about, well, one of the great moments in music and television history, Elvis's 1968 comeback special on NBC with the producer and the director of that show, Steve Bender, next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. If you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. If you're looking for trouble, just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. Back on downtown, well, by 1968, the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, hadn't performed live in years. He was lost in the wasteland of cheesy B-movies because that's where his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, thought the money was. But our next guest, producer-director Steve Bender, believed he could reignite that fuse that had lit the rock and roll world on fire back in the 1950s with a live show on NBC. He had to overcome some reluctance from Presley and a lot of reluctance from Colonel Tom Parker, who had some ideas about what he thought the special should be. We talked about all of that with the producer-director of Elvis's 68 comeback, Steve Bender. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for being with us today. Rich, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. My goodness. I mean, I I, I love the story and uh, have, have read everything I could about the making of the Elvis special through the years, but we got the book yesterday, and what a beautiful, beautiful book this is. Thank you. I appreciate it, and I I, I think you, Symes, the designer of the book, did an absolutely, you know, excellent job putting it together for us. Well, it's such a remarkable story. Let, let's go back a little bit. Uh, you and your crew, uh, Bones Howe and everybody involved, you had done a couple very successful specials, the Leslie Uggam special and then the Petula Clark special. Uh, what got the attention of Bob Finkel from NBC? It was the Petula Clark, Harry Belafonte, uh, sort of uh, famous touch, as they referred to it, where during the... Uh, uh, Petula had written an anti-war song, and at the time in, in 68, the uh, Vietnam War was raging on, and students all over the country were protesting the war. And uh, it was a case of where NBC didn't want me to, to, to have Petula sing a song that she wrote, not based on, on Vietnam at all. It was just based on parents sending their kids to go fight a war that, uh, you know, Soon after it's over, flowers are growing on the same battlefield where, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, uh, were wounded or lost their lives. And it was questioning why we fight wars 
anywhere in the first place. And uh, I convinced NBC to let her sing it since she wrote it. And uh, we put it together as a duet with Harry Belafonte. And uh, uh, we didn't have an audience, so I shot multiple takes of the song. And as a director, I had staged uh, Petula entering the stage uh, and going behind Belafonte over his shoulder. It, it was, to me, a beautiful director shot. Mm. But I'm a great believer that if you can't, uh, make an audience laugh or cry or be emotional about what you're doing. I don't care how much money you're spending on sets and costumes and what have you. It's a waste of, of everybody's time and has no impact. Uh, I, I want to see creativity when I watch anything. I want to feel emotional as an audience uh, when I see anything. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, it was a case of where uh, – I had done about four or five uh, takes where nothing was happening, and I just kept thinking, how can I make this happen? And so I told Petula, don't stand the next time behind Harry. Just go alongside him shoulder to shoulder. And it just took that to make it, you know, this classic emotional performance by the two of them where Harry looked over, and, and uh, on the close-up camera, I saw Petula tearing up and she was actually crying while she's singing it and it affected Harry and all of a sudden his eyes are tearing up and uh, so as soon as it was over I ran down uh, to the editing room at NBC in Burbank and I had the editor erase all the non-touching texts <laughs> that we had done because for sure I knew NBC would replace the touch with one of those you know non-touching and uh so I only gave them the option, period, to use the take that I wanted to use. And uh, that triggered NBC calling me saying, uh, we have a deal with Colonel Parker to do an Elvis television special, uh, uh, but we can't get Elvis to, uh, to do it. And uh, we thought with this controversy and you being kind of, you know, at that stage of your life, a rebel, uh, and... Uh, you know, you might have, and you're around the same age as Elvis, so you might have a lot more in common with him and convince him to do this this TV special. The colonel had only gone to NBC uh, not to do television. He wanted them to finance his next movie, which I think was Change a Habit with Mary Tyler Moore. And uh, NBC said, we'll loan you the money or give you the money to do this movie but only on one condition that you give us in return a one hour television special from Elvis. The Colonel closed the deal, uh, but never told Elvis. And when Elvis heard about the deal, he said, I'm not doing it. So they were, you know, uh, between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> and that's when they called me after seeing Petula and Belafani and the controversy that was shot all over the world in Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine, et cetera. And that's what triggered, uh, you know, getting the offer. And I said, I will only do it on one condition. And they said, what's that? And I said, uh, I want to meet Elvis one-on-one. -on -one. I'd never met him before. I was not part of the Elvis world. And uh, I want to see if we have anything in common. Uh, I'm a kid from the West Coast in L.A., and he's from the Deep South and Tupelo, Mississippi, and, and Tennessee, 
and uh, I want to see if if we want to work together. And so uh, uh, I met the colonel who gave his approval, and Elvis came to my office the next day at 4 in the afternoon, walked in uh, instantly. I mean, I knew this was the most charismatic person I'd ever met. I mean, he was perfect physically. (laughs) As a director, I looked at him and said, God, I can shoot this guy from behind on the (laughs) left side, on the right side. Many, many stars have a favorite side where they say, please shoot me on my left side or my right side. Uh, This was not the case with Elvis Presley. He was impressed when he saw Olive Bones uh, house gold records on our walls and realized he wasn't just in a world of television. He was in the the music business as well. And uh, we went to my office alone uh, and... uh, First question out of his mouth is, what do you think of my career? <laughs> and I said, it, I just blurted it out. I said, what career? I think your career's in the toilet. <laughs> and I didn't know if he's going to storm out of my office and leave, or his real reaction was he laughed and said, finally, somebody's speaking truth to me, you know. And, and, uh, and, and he wasn't went uphill from there. He wasn't eager to do television because he had had bad experiences with it early in his career. As he put it, it's, it's not my turf. Exactly. And, and he felt, you have to realize in 1968, primetime variety television was dominated and hosted by comedians. And they saw Elvis uh, as a foil for their comedy. And as a result, like Steve Allen, as an example, uh, put him in a tuxedo, uh, put him behind a table with a real hound dog, <laughs> live hound dog <laughs> in front of him. And, uh, you know, he was, he was not being uh, taken seriously as the, the, the star that he was. And certainly, you know, uh, after I finished the special, I was one of his biggest fans and and realized he really did earn the title of being the king of rock and roll. And when it was acknowledged, uh, not uh, not only by the general public of Elvis fans all over the world, but by his peers. And they came out immediately after the first airing on NBC, uh, just raving about Elvis and and. Uh, you know, Elvis always put himself down as a guitar player, yet every guitarist that I ever met in my life to this day uh, acknowledged that Elvis was one hell of a guitar player and musician himself, but never, was humble enough not to, to brag about it or anything. And, uh, you know, he, he was so much fun to work with to begin with because he had a great sense of humor and, uh, you know, and and this magical uh idea triggered by Elvis himself when he came to me early on and said, you know, uh, I rented this house in Beverly Hills, which is about an hour away from NBC Burbank uh, in those days. Now it's a two or three hour uh, drive back and forth. But he said, do you think there's a chance you could throw a bed into my dressing room and I'll live out here? I'll sleep every night here and uh, I won't waste two hours a day commuting back and forth uh, to this home. And Priscilla uh, had just given birth to Lisa Marie. I think she was three months old at the time. And so uh, I had Elvis 24-7 for the entire time I was out at NBC and uh, doing the show itself. 
And uh, as a result, uh, after we finished rehearsing or taping any segments, uh, out of sheer boredom, he, he went into his dressing room <laughs> where we had a couple of pianos and jammed until, you know, uh, having a lot of fun reminiscing about old songs that he that he played and, and uh, you know, and I went to the colonel and I said, this is more important than all the money we're spending on sets and costumes and people and dancers and singers. Uh, I want to take a camera in there and film it. And the colonel said over my dead body, <laughs> uh, as he usually was so negative uh, to any ideas that I had, he wanted his 20 Christmas song show and no dialogue from Elvis to the bitter end. What, what I never knew, and Priscilla told me a few years after he passed, uh, that the first meeting I had with him, he came home to her and said, uh, I don't care what the colonel says about this uh, special. I'm going with this guy, Bender. I got a, I got a gut feeling about him. And, and that explains why I felt all the time I was having confrontations and problems with Parker uh, why I was never fired. And that was the reason. Mm. Elvis stuck to his guns and his word. And, uh, you know, Bob Fingal, the executive producer from NBC, really kept the colonel out of our hair while we were actually doing the show and rehearsing the show uh, by playing games with him, like Liar's <laughs> Poker. And, and uh, you know, one time uh, the colonel gave Finkel, uh, they were getting very close at the time, and he gave him a, a case of Don Perio, uh champagne. And, and Bob was having a dinner party at his home for some special guests and friends. And so he pulled out the, the uh, bottle of champagne, uh, and it turned out that every bottle was filled with Gatorade. <laughs> that was typical of, of their, you know, uh, but Bob was the greatest executive producer because he kept the colonel out of Elvis and my hair, except on certain occasions where he would reprimand us for not having a Christmas song in the show. Mm. And uh, to the very end, when I finished shooting, I didn't put a Christmas song in the show because Elvis told me it wasn't necessary and he didn't want to do one anyway. Uh, luckily, he did uh, a couple of Christmas songs while he was doing the improv session like Blue Christmas. Mm. Uh, well, well one, of, one of his guys uh, over the soundtrack uh, was saying, sing it dirty, Elvis, sing it dirty. <laughs> and, uh, but, but that was uh, good enough for the colonel to say, okay, boys, uh, now you can air the show, because he was threatening NBC that if we didn't have any Christmas song in the show, he wouldn't allow the show even to be broadcast by NBC. Well, and, and that uh, that improv, Stephen, I, I went back and watched a bunch of clips from the special last night, and, and that's the heart and soul of the program and, and the genius of having uh, DJ Fontana and Scotty Moore back. It just seemed to free Elvis up that he, he became the real Elvis Presley in those moments. He forgot he was doing a television show. He was having so much fun reminiscing the old days. The interesting point of that whole thing is that it was Elvis who came to me when he heard I was going to recreate the the dressing room scenes on the improv on stage, the colonel told me, I won't guarantee you could even use any of it, but I'll let you do it. And I jumped on it. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was amazing because uh, Elvis said to me, 
do you think we could get DJ and Scotty to come out here, my original musicians, and and play with me? And uh, I didn't realize that when the Colonel broke up the trio in the early, early days, uh, they never uh, saw or played with Elvis Mm. before or after, even after we finished uh, bringing them in to do the improv on the comeback special. Uh, Elvis never saw them again, either of them, and uh, or played with them. And it was such a tragedy because uh, they all three, uh, during the improv, uh, it, was, it was like they picked up from the day before they were together. Uh, and I've had that experience myself where I haven't seen somebody maybe for years, and yet we were so close that when we did get together, it felt there was no lapse of time uh, between us, and and uh, it was it was the same feeling. They had such a good time doing it, and there was no rehearsal, no script for them. Uh, even though our writers actually wrote a script for the improv, which I put into the book, and it's hysterical. Uh, but I said, "This is real, Elvis. I'm not going to tell you anything or what songs to sing in what order or or anything. Just go out and do whatever you feel like." And uh, you know, he balked at it. Actually, he didn't want to go out there when when he called me into the makeup room, telling me that he couldn't remember anything he did in the dressing room. He couldn't remember any of the songs they sang. And DJ and Scotty didn't show up until we actually were taping it. And uh, so there was no any rehearsal. And I don't know any artist that could have just, you know, cold walked out there and performed for two hours and and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure Elvis forgot he was doing a television special. He was having so much fun, and uh, you know, and and they felt the same way. Well, it's a so, remarkable moment in uh, both television and music history, and uh, captured so well in this wonderful new book, Elvis '68 Comeback: The Story Behind the Special. Uh, Steve Bender, thank you so much for making time for us today. It was great talking with you. It was my pleasure, and I thank you again for inviting me. It was great fun. Thanks. That's great stuff. The book is absolutely beautiful, fascinating story. Steve Bender, producer, director of Elvis's 68 Comeback Special. Our thanks to Steve, and of course, thanks to Paula Poundstone, and to you for visiting with us this week. For Carrie Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown.